Would you join me in a couple of texts of scripture this morning? In Psalms 27 and in Acts chapter 6. Psalms 27 and Acts chapter 6. This past week, the Washington Post reported on a study and survey that found that confidence in a religion in religion in America is at an all-time low, all the way down to 42%. Now, I was a bit surprised it wasn't lower than that in times past. 42% as a low seemed rather high to me. But I would remark to the rest of the world, if this survey is true, that heaven has no confidence in anti-religion either. I do say that much of uh, the anti-religious sentiment in the nation may in some cases be justified. Mere formalism and ritualism without a faith-trust relationship in Jesus Christ really is of very little value, at least in eternity. But the kind of biblical faith that we're talking about, the biblical religion, uh, is of immense and eternal value. In fact, the scripture always uses the word religion in a positive sense, and when it does. But I would say to you that so much of the negative view that some have, I think, is rooted in the reality that there are many who don't know the people you and I know. If they did, they might have a different view. Many in our nation have grown up to be adults, and they grew up with adults that had chaotic lives. And they have responded to the chaos of those lives in several ways. One is many manipulate. They whine and they try to guilt others to do what they want them to do to fulfill their needs. They want someone to make them feel important. And building a relationship is too laborious and too difficult. And so manipulation is the adequate substitute, they feel. Then there are some that not only manipulate, but some medicate. Growing up with a chaotic life, with chaotic adults, ends up creating a lot of pain and dis-ease and anxiety. And so they medicate themselves and numb themselves with alcohol and drugs and sex and spending and with food. There are some that respond another way, and that is they dictate. They attempt to take control of other people, and they chip away at them with criticism and with intimidation and sometimes bully tactics in order to keep them from engaging in behaviors that cause them fear. And then there are some that accommodate. Some merely accommodate the chaos and adopt it as a new normal. They live as if there's nothing really wrong with chaos, with chaotic adults that fail morally. It's quite normal to live in a world where people resent and divorce and sleep around and accumulate crushing debt and never consider God's will or eternity in making a decision. In fact, New York Newsday reported an interesting tidbit about a former Rolling Stone of the rock band, the Rolling Stones, Bill Wyman. His son is about to marry his ex-wife's mother. Wyman's son from a previous marriage is Stephen. He's age 30, and he recently announced his engagement to Patsy Smith, age 46, the mother of Wyman's former wife, Mandy, who's age 22. If married... The marriage would make the rock star his ex-wife's step-grandfather. Well, that's okay. I used to be that slow, too. But this is bizarre. (laughs) I would say to you, in 20 years, this will not be as strange as it is today. For many, this will be a new normal, 
and it will confuse them why it confuses others that this is chaotic. Proverbs 27, 7 came to mind this week as I was contemplating on these issues. It says there something that is profoundly relevant. A satisfied soul, that's had enough to eat, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, honey. And that's true. When you're filled and satisfied, another bite to eat is something to loathe. You don't want any more. You can't stuff any more in. It's a perfect description of Thanksgiving around my house. So a soul, a body that is satisfied, doesn't want any more to eat. The truth is, is that many of us are that way in relationships. If you have a long history, the family that does marriage well, it may not impress you very much that members of your family or someone else reaches their 50th wedding anniversary. It's just what you do around your house. It's just what you do in your place. If people live peaceful lives and parents contribute consistently and positively to the lives of their kids and build them up, it may not impress you that they do that, that they have concern for their family and all. In other words, you're satisfied. It doesn't impress you that much. But it goes on to say, to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is actually sweet. There are people that have been so hungry, they have eaten rancid meat to survive on it. And there are some relationally that do this. I mean, there are some that are so desperate for love, they'll marry just about anyone who's breathing that they can show them just a moment of love. And that's why there are some that get into one relationship after another that is destructive and painful and hurtful and outside of God's will. And they lose all sense, run through every barrier God and His people put in front of them just to have a little bit of poisonous love. The soul that's hungry, even what's bitter, is sweet. There is, then, a need and an opportunity for our churches and our people to help reset others and give them a new normal. To demonstrate without intense criticism, to demonstrate without an air of disapproval, there is a better way God gives to all of His people. There's a new hope. And Stephen is going to help us with this in Acts chapter 6. Here, Luke recorded the extraordinary reset power, the extraordinary reshaping power of ordinary Christians like Stephen. Now we find with Stephen in verses 1 through 7 of Acts 6, his selection. Then verses 8 through 15, his witness. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, his defense. Charges were brought up on him against him, that he spoke against the temple and against the law, and he defended himself in the first 50 verses of Acts 7. And then his point is made in verses 51 to 53 of Acts 7, and then his death, he was killed for it, in verses 54 through 60. But I want you to take note for just a moment, in the midst of all of this, Stephen's audience. Chapter 7, verse 58. Stephen had cried out that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. As, his, as he was being stoned to death, the Father opened up the windows of heaven and let him see into the throne room where Christ sat at the right hand, which was a declaration of his deity and the fact that he was king of Israel, the thing for which they were killing him. And in verse 58 it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes 
at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was the Jewish name of a young man in seminary in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. When he came to the Lord in Acts chapter 9, he changed his name to the name that you probably know, a Greek name, to relate to the Greek-speaking world, and it became not Saul, but Paul. As Stephen was being martyred and stoned to death, the Apostle Paul, who would become the Apostle Paul, was standing there listening to every word Stephen said and guarding the clothes and the coats of those who were stoning him. And that is precisely what we find here in this text. And most miserably, in chapter 8, verse 1, look what it says there about him. Saul was consenting to his death. Now that's something of a prelude to what would become the Apostle Paul. This is how he began. Paul's, Saul's normal was death, persecution, execution of that which he did not approve of. Thank God the story doesn't end that way. God changed his life in Acts 9, which we will examine later in weeks to come. But here we find Stephen reshaping and resetting, or at least beginning the process of reshaping and resetting Saul, who would become Paul. If you'll trace Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7 and compare it to all the sermons the Apostle Paul preached from chapter 13 to chapter 28 of Acts, you will find a remarkable similarity at several places. The boldness of the two is very similar. The content is very, very similar. And then the endurance through persecution is profoundly similar between Stephen and the one who would become the Apostle Paul. Oh, it's remarkable to compare the two. I believe that what Luke is trying to indicate in a very subtle way is that the Apostle Paul lived in the trajectory of Stephen. And that makes uh, very good sense, doesn't it? If you had participated in the stoning death of someone else and later concluded you were wrong, you'd pay great attention to what he said as well and reflect on him and swim in the memory of the evil you had committed against him. So I believe that here was Stephen's death and his sermon. Stephen begins to set the trajectory and begin the process of reshaping and resetting the apostle Paul. It would behoove us then in this confused generation that really has an undesirable normal about life and relationships and walk with God. It would behoove us then to be the kind of people who emulate his marvelous example. And I want to say to you then, you may not be very impressed with yourself, and I don't know if those in your family or surround you are impressed with you at all, but according to the Word of God, if you are merely an ordinary Christian, you can participate in the work of God of reshaping and resetting an entire generation. God can do it through you. Well, how can we do that? Well, number one, guard the fellowship. Chapter 6, verses 1 through Seven, that's precisely what happened here. There was a problem in that they weren't distributing goods to everyone in the church as they met for fellowship. There were some complaints, and the solution was to elect the first council or fellowship of deacons, of whom Stephen was a part. And the result is found in Acts chapter 6, verse number 7. And that is, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The most recalcitrant, recalcitrant, recalcitrant stubborn group in all the world. 
against the gospel of Christ began to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. Please don't have too much fun at my expense. But in any case, that is precisely what happened in the text. A difficult group came to Christ when they solved their problem and boosted the fellowship. I would say to you, if you want to reshape the next generation and help others reset their walk with God and with one another, it is profoundly important that you keep your relationships from staying broken. Do not tolerate a relationship that stays constantly broken with others. Do all that you can. Now, I know it takes two, but so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Let broken relationships be the exception and not the pattern. Now, every one of you has got a relationship with someone where you'd like to go cannibal on them. I know. And they're not, very, uh, they're not very consiling. They're not very forgiving. They're constantly resentful. And you've done all that you can. Well, be at peace with that. You've done all that you can. But in most cases, in most relationships, there's often something that we can do to avoid having a relationship that is constantly broken. And that's uh, true in family. That's true with exes. That's true with former staff members. That's true with former church members. That's true with everyone that is still breathing on this earth. Do all that you can to master reconciliation. Learn to listen. Learn to understand. Learn to empathize. Believe in them. Affirm them and forgive. And beloved, I've got very good news for you, and that is I believe Beach Haven Baptist Church is especially poised of all the churches I've ever known to guard fellowship in relationships. Beach Haven Baptist Church is especially blessed with a large number of couples in the church family who have celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Would you like to guess... Would you like to guess the number of couples in our church family that have celebrated 50 years of marriage? What guess would you give? Some of you, yesterday, someone guessed a dozen. You might guess two dozen. You might guess three or four dozen. If you were to guess four dozen, you would be way too low. Beach Haven Baptist Church has seen at least 64 couples celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary and there are many that are close to doing so as well to this past week that celebrated their 46th and 47th wedding anniversary beloved that is something that works in this church family it's a gift that we can offer to the world this is the perfect place for God to reset a new generation guard the fellowship but there's a second thing and that is share the gospel now, these are not desirable circumstances in chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. These are difficult circumstances, and in the midst of it all, Stephen still preaches the gospel. He declares the word. Let me say to you, I know that many of you are scared to death of sharing the gospel of Christ with others. Please don't be. They are in desperate need for Christ, and Jesus is worthy of their lives. And think more about their need, and think more about Jesus' worth than you do your own fears, and you'll begin to get past that. Maybe not entirely, but you'll be able to manage that. But please do not be paralyzed into silence by your fears. The truth is, in just about every gospel encounter, there is at least a mild collision and fender bender between the gospel of Christ and the person who needs it. Most of the time, it's a mere fender bender. Once in a while, there's a great, spectacular uh, collision. I understand that. But most of the time, with sweetness and practicing the golden rule, you can make an enormous difference. And that's what Stephen did in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 6. But then there is a third thing to do. That is, stand for Jesus Christ. Stand for Him. And this is not unrelated to sharing the gospel. 
A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago, the desire to please others may be commendable enough under certain circumstances. But when pleasing others means displeasing God, it's, a, it's an unqualified evil and should have no place in the Christian's heart. To be right with God, he said, has often meant to be in trouble with men. And that's oftentimes what it means to walk rightly with God. You've got to be willing to go all the way for Him. Stephen did so. In chapter 7, verse 2, he raised his voice. He dominated the conversation for 50 verses. And he preached the gospel of Christ. Now, to stand for Christ, then, means you'll have to speak up. You'll have to take the initiative. And I would encourage you to do so politely. What I'm saying is not a license to have the personality of a bowling ball. Not at all. But instead to be polite. And I, when I find it necessary to stand for Christ and for what's right, I usually use a series of four questions. These might help you. One, what do you mean by that? I want to understand what you're saying. And I want to be sincere. And I listen carefully. I don't want to just simply tear down an argument. But number one, what do you mean by that? Number two, what is your source of information? Where did you get that? Now, in this day, many will begin to hem and haw, and their argument will begin to collapse and fall to pieces in a spectacular crash. Because generally, weak Tertiary, popular resources on the internet are about the only source of information many people use, and that nearly excludes thinking. All they've done is that they have accumulated information for themselves. They've mined through the information just to support their, themselves, and they've ignored the contrary evidence. And so you, you need to be gentle and kind, but you'll usually find a lot of nervousness in the first or second question, even that early. So one... What do you mean by that? Number two, what is, what is your source of information? I'd like to look at that myself. Number three, how do you know your sources are true? Well, that generally reflects a lack of thinking as well. Have I told you what Henry Ford said about thinking, by the way? He said it's the most difficult thing in the world to do. That's why most people don't do it. And I think he's right. So how do you know this is true? Have you thought carefully? Have you reflected on this? Have you compared it with other information? Have you sought counsel? Have you done serious research? Well, my soul, on issues like God and eternity, perhaps you ought to do some. These are rather serious issues. I mean, quite frankly, if I as a Christian am wrong, you have nothing to lose. To modify Pascal's wager, if, if, uh, if I as a Christian am wrong about God and heaven and hell and salvation and Bible and eternity, you have nothing, nothing to lose, friend by turning away from God and His Christ. But if I am right, I've got everything to gain and you've got everything to lose. It seems to me it would behoove us to use the gray matter between our ears. It is there for thinking. And we are to love God with all our mind. So what do you mean by that? What's your source of information? How do you know that's true? And then number four, you have to have a little audacity for this fourth question. But if by chance you are wrong, would you want to know it? Well, that checks the attitude. And I have found these things profoundly helpful. So those who reshape others are those who are willing to stand and kindly object to prevailing notions against the gospel of Christ. And so may I ask you, Christian friend, why don't you stand for Christ? Everyone else is standing for their cause. 
We'll give the world the idea that no one loves and trusts Christ if we continue to be silent. So stand for Christ. But number four, know the Scripture. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 50 help us remarkably. Here Stephen launches into his defense. And what Stephen does here is he goes through a chronological rehearsal of some specific challenges in Israel's history. He goes all the way from Abraham to the prophets. And he quotes verses that generally are not found in Scripture memory programs, like Amos chapter 5. Well, what is the last time you heard someone quote Amos chapter 5? Well, when's the last time you heard someone quote Psalms 91? Satan did when he tempted Jesus. So even he knew Psalms 91. But here, what Stephen does is that he doesn't recount all of Israel's history, but he recounts selections from Israel's history of those persons that especially relate to Israel's stubborn resistance against God's messengers. So he builds his case upon Abraham and the patriarchs, all of Jacob's sons and Abraham, from verses 2 through 19. And then Moses and Joshua in encounters of resistance they experienced from verse 20 to verse 45. And then David and Solomon, verses 45 to 48. And then the prophets, verse 49 to 52. Now here is his point in chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. And this is the point to which he's trying to come. Look with me there in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, another name for Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. This is his point in rehearsing Israel's history. Those who reshape the coming generation are those who have a general and detailed knowledge of the Scripture. They know the general flow and the specific details and can build a biblical case for their point from memory because they know the Word of God. And I've seen this in action many times with ordinary Christian people. I was sitting in a Sunday school class uh, many years ago. My cousin was teaching at the church that my great-grandfather pastored in Lumberton, Mississippi. I was told he pastored there for 50 years. And family was still in that church. And my cousin was teaching his men's Sunday school class one Sunday morning, and I had the great privilege of attending. And they were studying from one of the Old Testament prophets. And it was a lively class of men that were over the age of 50, and they uh, began with an impressive breakfast that was worthy of newspaper reporting, and then they got into the lesson. And my cousin was teaching the text, and they would give feedback, and it was a free-flowing back-and-forth class that involved lecture and discussion, and it was marvelous. And one of the men sitting on the second row, a farmer, was dressed that morning and sitting there with his Bible open. And he said, Dan, my cousin's name, you know, that reminds me of what the prophet Zephaniah said. And he quoted in support of the point my cousin was making from the prophet Zephaniah. Beloved, that was the first time and the last time I ever heard anyone make a point, a biblical point, from the prophet 
Zephaniah. How many of you know that there is even a Zephaniah in the biblical text? He's right next to Hezekiah. How many of you have read Hezekiah? No, you have There's no Hezekiah in the text. <laughs> Baby, we got a lot of work to do around here, don't we? <laughs> do you want to shape the next generation with the Scripture? There are three things profoundly important. Number one, get yourself into a Sunday school class. Every living, breathing church member needs to be a part of Sunday school, and you are welcome to be there. Make it a priority. Number two, have a plan for daily Bible reading. Do not wake up tomorrow morning without a plan. You, you don't want to do that. You want to have a plan. There are some that will read the book of Colossians through every day for a month. It's just four chapters, and they read it through. And they know Colossians at the end of that month. Then 2 Timothy, four chapters. They'll read that through every day for a month. You can read some of the minor prophets every day for a month because they're one, two, three, or four chapters. Uh, or you could read four chapters of the Bible through every day and read through it in an entire year. The point is, have a plan and then pray about what you read and make what's in the text your prayer request to God for that day. And then the third thing is to give some time to it. It is very difficult to be busy in life and know God in His Word. In fact, I'll say to you, as they used to tell me when I was a young man, if Satan can't make you bad, he will make you busy. And so you'll have as much power as someone who is. But there's a fifth thing to do, and that is to do what Stephen did, and that is to forgive the offender. Gary Creeman is the creator inventor of the dating site Match.com. And after creating the site, he had to learn a lesson in forgiveness. Because after he created the dating site Match.com, he lost his girlfriend to a man she met on his website. Well, you don't have to be a cannibal to what? Get fed up with people. That's true. Chapter 7, verse 60. All right, that's enough. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's the third statement Stephen makes here in the text that resembles how Jesus died on the cross and how he went through his trial and the abuse there. And then, as he's being stoned, as they're sending him to heaven, he's trying to keep them from hell, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. People who reshape and reset the next generation are not people who are immune from wounds or offenses or criticisms. They are people who have mastered, watch this, the struggle to forgive. And it can be difficult to forgive, can it? But they've mastered it. They've mastered the struggle to forgive. Now let me clarify. Forgiveness is not approval. When you forgive someone, it does not mean you approve of what they did. In fact, you're implying you disapprove of it because you're granting forgiveness, therefore it needs forgiveness. When you forgive, that does not always imply trust. A person may have to earn your trust again to be in an intimate relationship or to be in um, uh, some other place in life. 
It also does not mean denial. You, you don't say, well, that's okay, because it's not okay. It's not okay to offend. It's not okay to wound. It's not okay to injure someone. So you don't necessarily have to say, oh, that's okay. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. And it did hurt. So we don't deny these things. That, that's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means to set aside the offense and to refuse to punish the person as much as in, is as in your power to do and to refuse to withhold love and blessing. Instead, you'll give love, you'll give blessing to them. Now, how do I forgive? First, you surrender the desire to get even. Give it up. Turn it over to God. God is much better at collecting accounts than we are. Second, put yourself in the shoes of the one who hurt you. There are some exceptions to what I'm about to say. There are some unbelievable hurts and wounds and pains some have suffered. Mostly, however, what I'm saying applies to nearly everyone. And that is, as you put yourself into the shoes of the one who wounded you, you need to remember there is someone in the world that has mentally turned you into the same monster you've turned that person into. You've hurt someone too. You've wounded others. And you need to ask yourself, how do I want them to treat me from now on? Put yourself into the, on the same side as the one who wronged you. And then finally, think often of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross on which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. Jesus poured out abounding, abundant love at the greatest height of our sinfulness. Think often. In Charleston this past week, where Dylan Roof committed his atrocities against nine dear Christian friends at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Anthony Thompson, a member of the family, spoke to him the other day during the arraignment and spoke to him publicly, and his words have been recorded and have received broad publication, and they should. He said to this murderous 21-year-old, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. But we would like for you to take this opportunity to repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change it, can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you will be okay. Do that and you will be better. What marvelous forgiveness. You can experience the same thing by forgiving others and being forgiven by Christ. The first step is to come clean and to confess and to admit you have not positively and constructively influenced the coming generation for Christ. Well, wait, I want them to be good. Oh, no, 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 that's not what we mean here. We're not asking for goodness. We're asking people to be shaped in the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. Not everyone good is Christ-like. Everyone Christ-like is good, but there's more to Christ-likeness than goodness. There's praise and glory to Jesus Christ. There are eyes that are set upon the future. There's immersion in the Word of God and publication of the Word of God. Christ-likeness is more than goodness. It's more than morality. 
it is being shaped into the entire spiritual image of Christ with the eternal values that Jesus had. And the fact that you've only wanted people to be good and not Christ-like is clear evidence of the wickedness in your heart. You should want more. In fact, your life has been something thus far that has been a negative influence in shaping people for Christ. You're, you have relationships that are permanently broken and you've done nothing to mend them. You have wilted publicly when Christ's name has been challenged and you've been wimpy and cowardly. You've not shared the gospel of Christ. When it comes to the Bible, you're a spectacular ignoramus with the Bible. You're full of bitterness and resentment. I want to say to you, Christ is here and we are here to help the process of reshaping you. Do not despair. These things are unqualified evils. But Jesus Christ is Lord even over evil. And He can make it happen. And you are in a room full of people that would testify to the beauty of His name in doing so. That can happen. Isaiah 117 says, cease to do evil. So make a decision today to stop, stop your way. And turn to Christ, a radical, heartbreaking, soul-shaking and trembling, turning to the only hope, the Son of God. And then yield to Him. Colossians 3.10 says when we come to Christ, He begins the process of recreating us in the image of Him who created us. There is a recreation that takes place in our hearts and lives. In Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void. And then God began to recreate it, redecorate it with light and beasts of the field and plants of the field is what He did. And He wants to do the same for you. You surrender to that by trusting His death and His resurrection. Today, let Him begin the process of resetting and reshaping you. And Father, we pray that You would get us today beyond haughty exaggerations of our virtue and influence. Help us to see just how much of a stumbling block we've been. And I pray that our hearts would crack open over our lack of constructive influence. And today, Father, for those that have not been a constructive influence for Christ, help them today to cast themselves on His mercy, to cry out to Him, to ask Him to remove the millstone from around our necks, that is there because of the judgment of God. And I pray instead that you would build us into people who can build others for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now as you keep talking to God about it, let me explain to you what we're going to do this morning. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing, this is your time to get some practical help with Christ. We're going to stand. Staff will be here in the front. Why don't you quickly come see one of them and share your spiritual need and they will help you and we'll get the process started of helping you. Thousands through the years, over a half century have come, just like we're asking you to do today. And God has met them all. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door, I will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is willing to sit down at the table with you and spend time with you for the rest of your life. Why don't you come? Some of you need to come to Beach Haven and become members here. We want you. Some God may be calling to ministry or missionary service. You come. There may be other needs, but quickly stand with me, and I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come.
Dear Lord, we do pray that you would gather for yourself all the glory and worth that he deserves now as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.